Um, we're going to be uh, in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4. My name's David, by the way. Did I say that? I'm one of the pastors. 1 Thessalonians 4, um, and put a little something in uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, we're going to hit that a little bit later. It's really been uh, a joy uh, to prepare to preach this today. Um, although like most people, a lot of people, I have my own anxieties about uh, public speaking. That's why you'll hear my voice break once in a while. Um, according to uh, Jerry Seinfeld, the comedian, uh, people's number one fear uh, is public speaking. I can say amen to that. So number one is public speaking. You know what number two is? Death? Death. Death is number two. Public speaking is number one. So, they, so Jerry said, like, that way people go to funerals, they'd rather be in the casket than deliver in the eulogy. Thank you, Jerry. Um, um, thankfully, my career has not been in public speaking. You could call it more like private speaking uh, as a counselor and a social worker. Um, and it's been really hard, uh, but really good. Um, it's brought me in, in close contact with suffering people, um, including my work with hospice, um, with those who are dying and grieving and those who love them. Um, and though it's been hard, I've loved it because it's brought me in close to people's hope to people's hope, to what's most important, because what's most important gets really clear. If it didn't before, uh, what's most important gets real clear when death and grief uh, come to call. Um, what's also clear is that we have a pretty complicated relationship with death uh, in our culture. Uh, we're both fearful of and fascinated by death. You know, most people are doing all they can most of the time to kind of avoid it, avoid thinking about it, denying it, while at the same, of their own mortality, right? While at the same time consuming entertainment, TV, movies, games that graphically depict death and suffering and horror. Um, but for some of us right now, death and grief are a real part of your story today. And for that, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry for your pain. Uh, pain like this, it should not be. I wish it were not so. But here's what I hope that we all see today. It's on the screen. Death and grief are unavoidable but temporary realities of our world. And, our, and as Christians, we can live and die with joyful hope because of the eternal reality of the resurrection of Christ and of his kingdom to come. Death and grief are unavoidable but temporary realities of our world. And Christians can live and die with joyful hope because of the eternal reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his eternal kingdom. I'm going to tell one story from hospice to kind of set the stage. Uh, a patient of mine uh, with only a couple of weeks to live was visited by a group from her church. They came to sing to her, to encourage her, and they gather around the bed of this lady who couldn't get up anymore. She's dying of of cancer. She's courageous, faithful. I'd gotten to know her, heard her faith, heard her story, a humble follower of Christ. And here's what that little choir sang to her when they gathered around her at this moment. And they sang like this. Some glad morning when this life is over. Ah, you're laughing. I'll fly away. You should laugh. And she was like, stop. I mean, she made them stop in the middle of the song. She said, you know what? I'm about to do this. I'm about to get up out of this bed and fly away and be with Jesus. And I'm kind of happy about it. And you need to start over and sing like you're excited about it. <laughs> she made him start over. I love that. <laughs> and they did. 
She had some hope and she ministered to them in that moment. She faced her death with joy. So we've been in 1 Thessalonians, uh, which is a letter from the Apostle Paul uh, to a church in Thessalonica, which would have been in uh, modern Greece today. He was a missionary there and the power of God was there at the same time. So faith happened and a church was born uh, and uh, which Paul then taught and pastored. Uh, but a short time later, Paul and his kind of co-leaders were run off uh, and because the, the local Jewish leaders didn't quite like the idea of Jesus being God and the local civic authorities uh, wanted to maintain the peace such as it was under Roman dictatorship. Uh, but despite this, the, Thess- the Thessalonian church responded with joy and with hope in the midst of very serious persecution. And that touched Paul. He loved this church. So 1 Thessalonians is a letter of encouragement and instruction that Paul writes back to the church after he'd left and after they'd managed to send Timothy back, one of his co-workers, uh, to get a firsthand report about how the church was doing. He hears how well they're doing. He hears some things that they need to learn. So 1 Thessalonians is a letter of encouragement and instruction. So I want you to listen as I read. We're going to be in uh, verses 13 to 18. Um, Listen for the urgency. Listen for the love uh, and the care of Paul. Verse 13 in chapter 4. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Would you pray with me? God, thank you indeed for these words. I pray we would hear them as words of encouragement. Father, we do face a world of trouble. We do face grief and sorrow and even death. Father, would you, would you kindle hope and kindle faith uh, by your spirit and through these words. May they be yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, we're gonna talk about the glorious return of Christ uh, in a minute, but this is not uh, an eschatological, es- I can't even say the word, a sermon about the end times. <laughs> Good thing. <laughs> because Paul doesn't mean to say here exactly how uh, things end, but he does emphasize that they end well, really, really well, right? The end is Jesus wins. He overcomes our temporary reality of death and grief with the eternal reality of his resurrection and coming kingdom. That is our joyful hope. And Paul's language here indicates that he is answering a specific concern of the Thessalonians, who though they believe, and Paul recognizes they believe Jesus is God and that he's coming back and that his coming is very good, though they believe these things, the question is, but what about those who died before Jesus comes? What about about those who have already died, our brothers and sisters? Are they without hope because they died before Jesus came back? Did they die perhaps in vain? They were undergoing some serious persecution and some were dying. And Paul will answer this question 
In so doing, he pastors them and he pastors us toward a faithful perspective on death and grief and hope. That's where we're gonna head. How are we to regard death and grief and hope in the light of Jesus wins? The answer to their question about the fate of their uh, dead brothers and sisters, it might strike you as obvious and you've, we've already read the answer here. But I would ask you to hear their question not as merely academic, right, or informational, but as a cry of their hearts. Like I said, things get real. <laughs> when, when death comes to call, when suffering comes to call, you start to wonder, like, is this really for real? Do I really believe this? And Paul seeks to meet them both at the head and the heart. There is something lacking in their understanding that Paul seeks to fill up, right? In verse 13, he says, we do not want you to be uninformed about this matter. So there's a disconnect between their faith, what Paul knows they have, and their understanding, which apparently is incomplete, and then their practice, which will flow from their faith and understanding. He aims to inform them of what they do not know so that they might not grieve like those without hope. He tells them that though there are people of of faith, because of their incomplete understanding, they grieve like people without faith. And so he seeks to teach them and draw out an implication of what they already know and believe. But Paul seeks to do more here than just impart information because knowledge is never mere knowledge. Knowledge alone is never enough to change your life. For example, everybody knows what it takes to get more physically healthy, right? Fries or salad, <laughs> soda or water, right? Going to bed late and getting up late or hit and hitting the snooze bar or getting up early and hitting the road for your jog. But we know the choices we're supposed to make. Why don't we do it? <laughs> Simply said, our hearts aren't in it. <laughs> I want French fries. I want soda and I want an extra hour of sleep, please. Unless we catch a vision of better, a more compelling vision of what is better than information is not enough. We'll settle, we'll settle for less. And the vague notion of you know, better physical health might just not be enough. Um, but the idea that I want to chase my kids around or maybe even my grandkids years from now without getting winded and falling over, like that's a pretty good vision. I'd rather have that. That might get me out of bed in the morning. I need a vision to capture my heart and draw me forward. And so Paul aims both for the head and for the heart to make the eternal reality of the resurrection and the coming of Christ even more visible and more compelling to this church so that in facing their difficult circumstances, the temporary realities of death and of grief, they might have joyful hope and hope that is not just for them, but for everybody. It will be displayed to the watching world. So I'm gonna circle back here, but I wanna first talk quickly about these realities of death and grief and hope, a little bit of a definition, and then how our culture tends to regard them so we can draw the comparison. You know, our experience and our science uh, have taught us that death is inevitable and permanent. What is alive dies, but what is dead cannot live. It's inevitable, it's permanent, and it's ubiquitous. Everything, everyone is touched by death. Uh, Roughly 3,000 people worldwide uh, will die over the course of my sermon, unless I go long. Uh, 105 per minute. Sorry for them. Um, death has long been you know, a pretty straightforward reality. 
in our human society. It's only been really recently that science has advanced. And so now the common infection that once would have killed you is now a temporary inconvenience. Uh, heart attacks and AIDS used to be uh, automatic death sentences, no longer. And very soon, we'll, I expect that you know, stage four cancer and others like that will think of the same way. And with these changes, though, come changing expectations, changing even definitions of death. Uh, it's a legal uh, battlefield now, ethical battlefield, over the definition of death. The upshot of this, one of the upshots, is that though lives have certainly been saved and technology has advanced so that suffering is reduced, this technology has not helped people cope <laughs> with the ultimate reality, the inevitability, the permanency the ubiquity of death. Death can be delayed, um, perhaps even for a while, and longer than it used to be, but it cannot ultimately be cheated. And so we grieve. Uh, grieve is an emotional, a physical response to loss and death. Um, I love that this came out of the mouth of the Queen of England. I hope she wrote it. But while eulogizing uh, victims of a um, terror attack, she called uh, grief the price we pay for love. And I love that I've used it a lot. The price we pay for love. Maybe it's because I'm, I'm married to a poet, but I love how poetry uh, can capture experience like this. So this is a poem by Edna St. Vincent Millay. Would you listen and just feel this with me? Time does not bring relief. You all have lied. Who told me time would ease me of my pain? I miss him in the weeping of the rain. I want him at the shrinking of the tide. The old snows melt from every mountainside, and last year's leaves are smoke in every lane. But last year's bitter loving must remain, heaped on my heart, and my old thoughts abide. There are a hundred places where I fear to go, so with his memory they brim. And entering with relief some quiet place where never fell his foot, or shown his face, I say, there is no memory of him here. And so stand stricken, so remembering him. Isn't that honest and raw? We carry memory everywhere. And so grief inevitably follows us everywhere. And with grief hits, it hits hard. And hope can be hard to come by. Hope is popularly defined as an expectation, an anticipation of some imagined good. You know, even if we don't know exactly what we are hoping for, even if the odds are long, we love to hope, right? Sports fans, there's always next year, always next year, we say after our team gets shellacked again. So, um, the, I love the prison movie, The Shawshank Redemption, which really made, uh, is all about the thrill and the, the risk of hoping for one prisoner with a life sentence uh, hope was sustaining and freeing, while for another life, life prisoner, uh, hope was just foolish talk, right, that could drive a man insane. It, so he wanted nothing to do with it. He, he looked forward, and all he saw was darkness. So he dare not look forward. But how does our culture regard death and grief and hope? Um, when it comes to death, we're often prone to make a joke. I've already done it three times already this morning. But Monty Python, and many like them, made very successful careers. Uh, if you don't know who Monty Python is, just Google, bring out your dead, or I'm not dead yet. 
Or just Google funny epitaphs, right? The words on tombstones. You could find a lot there. Do you know who Mel Blanc is? The voice of Porky Pig? You know what's on his tombstone? That's all, folks. Yeah, that's really what it says. Um, death is uncomfortable, so we joke. Consider how death also is exploited for profit uh, by horror and action movies, by video games that treat death like sport. And I'm not hating, maybe on, maybe on horror and video games, but I do watch action movies. Uh, but let's just be honest about, about what they are. Um, and then you got your vampires and your zombies, your dogs in heaven and angels in the outfield. Flatliners, Ghostbusters, I grew up in the 80s, right? Um, death is being exploited for laughs and for profit. Consider next that in addition to the basic choices and the rising expenses of funerals, many today are making uh, other choices like custom interactive headstones, uh, embalming options like being stood up at the snack table after the funeral, not kidding, Um, or uh, full-on themed funerals like this one, right? I don't know if they burn him on a pyre like a Jedi, but Death anxiety, I'm still not kidding, is driving some people to make plans to be frozen, to replace worn-out body parts with biological or high-tech replacements, or to have their minds uploaded to an android brain or fused with artificial intelligence. Uh, People are making plans for doing this now. Death is being regarded as just another human condition that human innovation can soon overcome. And And it's being seen as a lucrative opportunity for profit and laughs. I think it's all driven by real anxiety, <laughs> by real death anxiety, because they know that what they, they think they can cheat or ignore ultimately will not be. Our culture's a little less weird about grief. You'll hear that grief is good and right out there, but you'll also hear people say things like, you know, shouldn't you be moving on? Isn't it time that you washed your face and, and, and moved on? You know, in my experience, what those people are really saying is you're making me uncomfortable and um, I'm ready for you to stop or just keep it to yourself. And so grievers are routinely isolated um, when their grief doesn't fit our ideas about what it should be. So grief is a good thing, but we'd really not be overly bothered or inconvenienced by it when it's someone else's. And hope, our culture loves hope. Movies like hope, as I said, science likes hope. Research validates Hope as well as a contributor to better outcomes. Hopeful patients do better. Hopeful counseling clients do better. But when you look or Google for what people actually hope in, things get a little vague. Uh, Helen Keller said, optimism is the faith that leads to achievement. Nothing can be done without hope and confidence. End of quote. Okay, hope and confidence in what? And you can find countless other examples that sound Good, you know, keep the faith, hang in there, keep it up, stay positive, stay happy. Uh, You know, posters and bumper stickers. Is that what people really need? They need hang in there when the suffering is unrelenting, when death draws near, when grief's bitter loving from our poem earlier becomes a constant companion. People need more than sentiment. They need more than positive, well-meaning, empty words. Empty words. Our passage teaches us today that the way we grieve and the way we die is wholly dependent on the object of our hope, not just vague hope, but the object of it. And ours is the permanent, 
reality of the resurrection and in in the kingdom of Jesus. So how do the faithful regard death? Look again at verse 13. It says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Sleep. <laughs> now, some of you sleep like the dead, or you've got a teenager that sleeps like the dead. Um, the Bible frequently refers to death as sleep. And sleep certainly is like death in terms of the closed eyes and the still body and the lack of awareness. Um, but sleeping people wake up. The dead do not wake up. Let's get it straight that death is no joke. Uh, that body counts are not a measure of a movie's quality. And the only ghost walking around is the holy one. <laughs> uh, mostly dead, undead, living dead. These are Hollywood concepts, not biblical ones. And let's also be clear that God's created order, version 1.0 in the garden, did not include death and decay. It was exclusively alive. But death slithered in to that vulnerable garden. Uh, it deceived and destroyed it, it, uh, by means of the human rebellion against God that opened the door. Death became a plague on all creation. From the first <clears throat> curse of dust to dust uh, to our modern history of hatred and violence. And so for now, the whole creation groans under the weight of death. We groan under the weight of death and we and we wait, we wait now for the last breath of the last death when God will finally say, no more, no more. And then we'll come, Bible says, the death of death. We don't know how much longer till that day, but here's what we know. For now, death is an inevitable reality. We have to deal with it. It is God-given wisdom to regard death as a reality. There's a lyric in one of our songs, minor days that God has numbered. Psalm 39 records these words, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths and my lifetime is as nothing before you. This is on the screen. Death is for now a reality to live wisely in light of. That's how we're to regard it. It is a reality to live wisely in light of. And Christian, it is not a permanent or a ubiquitous reality. The Bible calls death sleep. <laughs> they laughed at Jesus in Matthew 9 when he said that a dead girl was sleeping. She was in fact dead, but then Jesus woke her up. Do you remember my faithful hospice patient? Did you catch the lyric that they were singing to her? Some glad morning when this night is over, I'll fly away. This woman was about to die. She was about to fall asleep with joyful hope because of her expectation of the dawn to come. Maybe her visitors, uh, for them, the night was all they saw. And so they were grieving. They were anticipating their coming loss but they needed what my patient had to give them, hope and encouragement, not to stop grieving, but to sing with joy through their tears. The Lord certainly does not teach us here to not grieve. This is why we sing uh, in the words of another, one of my favorite worship songs here. We sing minor tears in times of sorrow, darkness not yet understood. Through the valley I must travel where I see no earthly good. <laughs> 
The song goes on, but the, the faithful response is not to dismiss grief. It's not to deny our pain. The loss and the pain are real. Grief is unavoidable because loss is unavoidable. Um, I, my understanding of the Buddhist answer to loss and grief is, is to have no attachments. No attachments because you can't lose what you don't have. And no loss, no grief. Easy peasy. But God is love. And love attaches, right? Love binds. Love bound Job to his children. So he grieved their loss. In the book of Job, Jeremiah was bound by love to God's people and God's city. And so he wept and grieved over their loss. Paul was bound by love to the churches. And so he wept and he grieved at their suffering and their sin. And love bound Jesus Christ, the man of sorrows, to his friend Lazarus. So even though he knew what he was about to do, he wept at Lazarus's death and joined in grief with the man's family, his friend's family. So grieve, Christian. Grieve. It's okay. Grieve what is loved and now lost. Make space for your grief and make space for one another's grief. It's the right, faithful thing to do. It's an act of love. And, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve like those who have no hope. Grieve and grieve with hope. But hope is not a wish for what might happen. It's not positive thinking. It's not a bumper sticker. Read uh, back in chapter four, verses 14 and 15. It says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left at the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Jesus died, but he didn't stay dead. He was woke at the dawn and resurrected to life. And this is the cornerstone of our faith because Christ was raised. The dead in Christ will be raised to join him when he comes, even before those who are alive still when uh, he comes back. Jump with me quickly to uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 15. Thought I had a marker there. 1 Corinthians 15, look at verse 16. This just says it so much better than I could. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, right? It's the other side of the argument. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive but each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end. Let's get our, our theology from the Bible and not mass entertainment, all right? The dead don't die and then stick around to finish their business or to make things go bump in the night. And Christians don't go to heaven in the way like it happens in the cartoons with ghostly spirits 
robed in white and, and heart strumming. How, how does this happen? Let's look at, back at 1 Thessalonians, the, the last verses of our passage, start in 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who fall asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Church, King Jesus and heaven are coming here. That's why we pray, thy kingdom come. And our great hope is to be resurrected like Jesus and by Jesus, commanded to life, even better than when he raised Lazarus. It says he used a loud voice when he raised Lazarus. Here it's the voice of an archangel and trumpet, apparently loud enough to wake all the dead, all of them, and better than Lazarus because we will never die again. We'll be raised and caught up together in the clouds to meet with the descending Lord. Can you <clears throat> picture that? Can you see it? The imagery, the imagery here is that of a king who had left for war and now he returns home and he comes over the horizon in sight of home. And those watching for him from the castle tops, the, ca- the walls, the towers, they see him, they spot him and joy rises quickly as the news spreads that he's coming back because him coming back only means one thing, victory. It means victory. And so as a stream of the king's people would flow out from the castle to meet him while he's still out there, they go out to meet him in order to march in with him, in order to start the party and sing and rejoice and dance with him and celebrate. Here's my question. What is your hope in life and death? When the saints go marching in, are you counted in that number? Because Christian, this is your hope. The Lord has been victorious. Death, that terrible plague is defeated. And the permanent proof, the banner of his victory is the empty tomb. Jesus died and then rose. And so shall we, whether we're alive at his coming or whether we fall asleep first. And just like sleepers lose awareness of the passing time, I think this is going to be fast, right? The Bible says in other places that absence from the body is presence with the Lord. The dawn will come very quickly and we will indeed rise. We're not going to waste any time waiting around. There's no purgatory. Our sleeping bodies then will be, will be risen, woken at his coming to join with him in his victory. And so we will always be with the Lord. Is that your hope? Is that your hope? For now, in the words of the 130th Psalm, we wait for the Lord. Our souls wait. And in his word, we hope. Our souls wait for the Lord like watchmen wait for the morning. Oh, church, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love and plentiful redemption. I urge you to encourage one another with words like these. But to you who do not yet believe, what is your hope? You live right now, just like Christians do, in the valley of the shadow of death. But unlike Christians, you live right now under the tyranny of the fear of death, under the threat of its sting. Death and sin and Satan, they prowl. They wait for you at your door. Their aim is to have you. 
And so what is your hope? Positive thinking? Having a good, being a good person? Or just denial and try not to think about it? Instead, would you confess your sin, your rebellion, that opened the door to death? Would you confess that against God? Confess Christ as the one Lord and victorious King. If you do this now, the power that raised Christ will raise you. You can live today without fear of death. You can be certain today that the closest you'll ever come to death will be to temporarily walk in its shadow. Today, you could grieve with hope, with peace that flows from heaven, knowing that your pain will not be wasted. And you could leave here today unshakable because Jesus is alive. He's alive and he's coming here in victory and in joy to join with his people forever. You pray with me? God, thank you for these encouraging words. Would you so imprint them on our hearts and our minds? Would you bless us with such a compelling vision of the eternal reality of Jesus's kingdom to come that we might face grief and death, not without sorrow, but without fear. May we face the trials of today, even with joy, because Though it's now night and the night seems long, we know for certain that the dawn is soon to come. We pray in Christ's name, amen.